Hi, and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia, who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world changed by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website, www.northridge.org.au. Um, so the first point I wanted to make was about the Bible itself. The Bible is considered one of the most complex literary works in the whole of history. So you, big author names like Homer, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, all these like considered epic books of which I have not read them. I have read summaries, but not the whole of them. Um, they're considered literary masterpieces. But the Bible is... 66 books, if you're looking at the Protestant version of the Bible, 35 authors written over a span of 1,600 years, spanning 4,000 years of history, so like a long period of time, three different languages, at least three different continents it was written in. And I say this because it is the most complex literary work, yet it is a comprehensive unified text that points to the redeeming love of Jesus and what he's doing in this earth. There are so many authors, yet they're all saying the same thing. They're all linked together. There's loads of hyperlinks. And I think the thing I'm saying is that there's there's so many different connections to be made, and exploring them and looking at them a little bit more is just so important to do. It isn't designed to be understood in one sitting, so we can all just kind of give ourselves a bit of a break if if we don't understand something, because... Um, There are people that spend all their lives trying to understand what's written in the scriptures, and they still, I imagine, would get to heaven and God will go, yeah, it was like, this is what was meant. And they'll be like, oh. You know, so there will be so much that we don't understand. And the key is not to be so black and white and black and white in your thinking that you dismiss some of the things that might be hard to grapple with, um, because that could just mean that we need to do a bit more searching, and that's actually really good for us. and I think, it's, I think the other point I wanted to make before I head into the stories themselves to remember for this whole series is that as humans, we draw conclusions about motives based on people's actions. So we, um, if, if we see something written in the Bible that God commands or that he says, especially in the Old Testament that we're covering in the next few series, we automatically judge a motive behind that. In fact, God's actual character when we're looking at it. And I think that we've got to be careful of that because Chris mentioned it um, in another series we were doing. We have really small brains and, um, and basically God is God. We are us. We don't understand everything about God and everything about his character. Um, Chris used a great analogy. He said it's like trying to measure the circumference of the earth with a ruler. We're all going to try and do it. Well, some of us will. Some of us won't. Um, but that's the, we're applying a tool that isn't quite ready for the job in terms of under, trying to understand the character of God. So, so remember that in some of the ways when we explore the stories as well and have to wrestle through things a little bit. Okay, the story tonight is Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. Yay! Um, who has heard of this story? Uh, just like a show of hands. Who has heard of this story? Andrew Jones hasn't, but everybody has <laughs> And so basically, I didn't want to read the whole story again. One is Joshua chapter 1 to 6, um, which is a long, 
a long passage, but I do recommend you go and read it. Um, I decided to go to a children's Bible because it's Sunday School Revisited. And we're going to read the story of the fall of Jericho. Moses had appointed Joshua to be his successor, as he was a man who loved God. God told Joshua to prepare the people to cross the river Jordan so that they could go and take Jericho. Joshua sent two spies to scout the city, and they were given refuge by a woman named Rahab. She asked that when they took the city, they would spare her and her family. They agreed. And as she lived on the wall, she lowered them out, out her window to the other side. God told the people that the ark that held the Ten Commandments should be carried by 12 priests and that they and all the people should march around the city of Jericho, sounding their trumpets once every day for six days. And on the seventh day, they were to march around it seven times. At the sound of the trumpet, after the seventh round on the seventh day, the walls of Jericho would come crashing down. Joshua made the people obey, and everything happened just as God said. Joshua remembered Rahab and took her and her family safely out of the city, after which they burned the city of Jericho to the ground. And then at the end in this children's Bible, it has a moral which says, the moral of this story is, God goes before his people and gives them victory in battle. It's a pretty cool story, and it's actually a great summary. And like, So I'm not going to go over some of those bits again. I'm just going to continue talking about that. So we've got, I'm going to give you, fill in a bit of gaps here. Joshua 6, verse 1 to 7. It says, now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. That's like a really important point, and we're going to find out a little bit why later. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. And then the whole story happens around the city a lot, one time, two times, lots of horns and the Ark of the Covenant moving around, just as the story says. And in verse 20, it says, When the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed, and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. They completely destroyed everything in it with their swords, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, goats, and donkeys. So that's like a little bit not the PG version that we just read in the children's story. Some historical context for you before we get into a few questions that this this story brings up. One, Jericho wasn't the largest city, but it was the most fortified city in the region. It was considered basically impenetrable. It um, was widely considered by archaeologists to be to take about maybe over a year of siege just to get in. It had two big walls. I looked up some diagrams, but they're a little bit complicated. But there's one big wall there, and then a slope, and then another wall. And it was considered an archaeological um, by all archaeologists, whether they're Bible scholars or not, as one of the most important sites in terms of telling us about modern history. It had been, it's probably the earliest continuous settlement in the world. So a lot of archaeologists, whether they're Christian or not, go to Jericho and search it. So it's, it's, it's a strategically very important city. It lies on the west of the Jordan River. The Jordan River comes down to the Dead Sea. And the children of Israel had come from Egypt, done a loop in Sinai, had gone into the wilderness for 40 years, come around, and now they were sitting in this city. Jericho was here and the Jordan was here. So they had to cross the Jordan to, to take Jericho. 
And we know from the story that actually what we didn't read in in the um, Bible story I read was that Joshua sent some spies into Jericho to have a look. And that's how they got to know Rahab. So we're kind of getting little pieces of the story together. Then the question is, hmm, got muddled up here. As we started to explore this a little bit more, there was one big question that kept coming around and we kept asking it and people that I'd spoken to kept asking it as well. And that is that as a modern reader, the story of Jericho is actually a really challenging one, which is why I gave you all the look at things, remember that things are grey at the beginning of this talk. Because it's a pretty difficult story to read. I want to take some time to explore the question of, it, of violence. So we're addressing the question of violence. Is this the same God that revealed himself in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Does this story qualify as genocide because God commanded that all the people should die, the women, the children, the animals, everyone? And how does this square with our understanding of the character of God? This is a really difficult question because in order to be able to explore a story like that, we have to be able to wrestle with the question, the God I believe and the God I know and the God I love and the God who loves me, I don't think that, I can't reconcile these two. And that's why we often hear people talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. I would suggest that that God is the same God and... um, I think that sometimes when we don't understand something, it's more about wrestling to try and find it than just making a black and white statement, the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New, because um, hopefully by the end of this talk, you'll discover that there are some amazing traits about his character that we can learn from this story. There's a passage in Joshua chapter 5, which is a really interesting passage, which sets the scene to to address this question a little bit more. Joshua 5, verse 13 to 15, When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, Are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied, I am the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? This is really interesting because this part of the story was placed before the Battle of Jericho. In fact, before any battle between the Israelites and the Canaanites. And I'd like to suggest that this battle is not an Israel versus Canaan battle, but a God versus human, human evil battle. And that the children of Israel were used at this point in history as an instrument of God's divine justice, as opposed to a people group against all other people groups. I also want to make a quick stop here, and I don't want to get political in any way, but Joshua made the mistake of thinking that it was Israel versus Canaan. And the commander of the Lord's armies, of which there's a very big debate amongst scholars who it was, whether it was an angel or whether it was Jesus pre-incarnate, I don't believe it actually matters in this story. Um, he, he, was, he was confused because he was like, wait, you're either on my side or you're not. I think that we might have the same problem as Joshua today. Um, do we pick a side? Um, do we pick a side in a story? I'm pro this or I'm anti that, when neither of them are actually God's side. Um, and so the commander of the army is giving us all a really good lesson here. 
Joshua, this isn't about you being awesome and me just, you know, fighting with you. This is about an instrument of God's justice to this land, which helps us to understand a bit as to why Jericho was the city that was then targeted. The, the point is clear, I've written here, God is going to bring his judgment on human evil. And the real question is whether Israel is on God's side. And this story preempts all the other um, battles that the children of Israel fight. So it's good to remember that. Let's not get mistaken here. The children of Israel could never have taken Jericho without divine intervention. Really important to know that. So this really was God's fight. One thing that I wanted to, to draw on was the fact that all the way back when Abraham was first in the land, there was an untold story between God and the Canaanites that we know because we go back in history, which is why I mentioned how important the Bible was and how even though it was so complex as a literary, um, as a literary work, it linked all the way through all the stories. So what I wanted to say was that Abraham had a lot of interaction with the Canaanites as well. And when Abraham was being taken out of the land and God said, I'm going to make a nation of you, he also said something. He said, the fourth generation of your descendants, he's talking to Abraham now, will come back here. Here in parentheses being the promised land. For the sin of the Amorites, um, a group within the Canaanite people, has not yet reached its full measure. God was talking to Abraham in Genesis. This is the fourth generation. They're now back in the promised land. And the first thing that God commands the children of Israel to do was attack Jericho. In Deuteronomy 9, 12 and 19, there's a description of the destructive sexual behavior, injustice and harmful body mutilation along with the widespread widespread and abhorrent practice of child sacrifice in the Canaanite culture. The Canaanites as a people group weren't in the Bible because they were a people group. In fact, most historians don't actually believe they were one group of people. They, rep- they represented um, a set of a way of life that was so contrary to anything that God could be a part of that it was against everything that he stood for. And the laws in Deuteronomy, even though they take a lot to work through, all they they really do is show us that God fights against injustice and looks after the most poor and the most weak. And he created a whole law to to build a society that would uphold that moral value. And yet the Canaanites, in fact, were doing the people that it was widely discovered in history weren't doing this. In fact, were doing the very opposite. And can I mean, we read all of that now, or we hear all, all of it, and we, you know, we think because they happened in ancient times, like it always happened. But can you imagine being God and seeing this kind of way that the people of this earth were operating and the way that they were treating and abusing, um, abusing human humanity and, and the people that were, were in their town. And Jericho was that stronghold. Jericho was the flag that said, we can do whatever we want and you can't stop us because you can't because we're in the most fortified city created. And so God never acts in a knee-jerk manner. He gives loads of warnings. Um, it says in the Bible, Rahab talks about the fact that um, everyone was scared 
when the children of Israel were coming. But they weren't scared because the children of Israel were known to wipe people out because they weren't. They weren't actually even a fully formed army. They were scared because they had been warned many, many times throughout history of what would happen if they continued down that path. And they also knew that God was God and he could do it. They didn't think the children of Israel could, but their God, whoa, that was a whole other matter. So again, you get a bit more context into this seemingly um, brutal story that there's a lot more that goes before that. So when people ask these questions about violence in the Old Testament and how it reflects on the character of God, I think it's really good to just do some exploring. Find out where it comes from, find out the history of, of it all, and find out God's interactions with them. Because I think you'll find, as you did with Pharaoh in Exodus that we did last year, God doesn't not give people chances. In fact, um, there's a story that I'm going to tell you about later to do with Rahab. And um, um, Joshua sent some spies into Jericho, which is really interesting because I'm not sure like how much the spies' information helped Jericho be destroyed because I feel like God was going to do that anyway. So there must have been another reason that God allowed Joshua to send some spies into Jericho. And yes, they scoped out the city um, but people would have been in that city before. So um, maybe it was to meet Rahab. Maybe it was to meet someone who actually did declare their belief in God and was faithful at that time. And we don't know all of it there, and we don't want to draw too much conjecture into that, but certainly God didn't destroy everyone. And it makes a point of saying that. So as Abraham says in Genesis 18, verse 25, when he is crying out to God for... Um, for Sodom and Gomorrah, and he prayed for God to save that, that town. He did say at the end of it all, God, he pleaded with God, but he said at Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of the earth do right? God is God, and do, he can do as he chooses and as he wills um, with people that go against the moral values and standard that he's created for this world. And he doesn't do it often, and he only did it once to the Canaanites in the whole of their time, and that was in Jericho. And that's another point I wanted to make, is that God doesn't, doesn't play favorites, because he turned around to the children of Israel and he said, if you adopt these practices, um, the same will happen to you. Because this isn't about you being the children of Israel and them being the Canaanites. This is about upholding uh, upholding my law and my principles. And we actually do see many, in many, many times in the book of Judges, generations of it, the children of Israel did suffer that judgment. I did want to say that God's divine justice, his mercy and his fairness in, with those in the Old Testament and his fight against injustice proved and showed his unchanging nature. It was the thing that Abraham called on in his cry to God, you do right, and I know you do right, and because I know you do right, you're my God. And that's another important thing. It's like a parent who doesn't follow through when they say you need to stop doing it. I'm not a parent. Congratulations to all the parents out there. You're amazing. Um, but if you tell a kid to, um, to not do something, and if they do it, then they're going to get it in trouble, and then you don't they don't get in trouble, so you don't follow through. Um, you lose all integrity, um, and your kid can just do what they want. Um, and that's really important. If God didn't follow through on this, the judgments that were put in place, 
then there would be no need for what was to come in the future. And in fact, it would completely devalue the sacrifice that Christ was to make for us in the future. That sacrifice and that salvation and what he needed to do, we only really saw the extent of because we knew what the judgment could be. It made us very grateful for that. So that addresses in a very short, short way, and very small, I know there are many more nuances, some of the question of violence in the Old Testament. My encouragement to you is to not dismiss it if you don't understand a passage or if a passage grates at you and you're just like, I just don't get this. My challenge to you would be to explore it, to see reasons why, to to see the character of God within it. His unchanging steadfastness um, is what everyone could call on at that time. And in fact, it was one of the most amazing attributes. And it's one thing we all love about God now. And so explore those things as you wrestle with some of those topics. And don't necessarily dismiss the passage or um, choose not to speak about it or share about it or preach about it because, um, because it's hard. Because it's meant to be a little bit hard. That's what's good about it. Okay, so another big question is why on earth is it in the Bible, this story, at all? There have been many debates. I think um, if we go to the next slide, Zach, and then the next one. Great, thank you. I picked out three reasons. There could be 20, there could be 40. Please feel free to explore it um, yourself. But three key takeaways from this story and reasons why this story might have been included in the Bible at this time throughout history. The first one is the story of Rahab, the God of grace. Now, Rahab was a Canaanite, and we know she she met the spies. She saved them, and in saving them, they promised to save her and her family. The thing that we see in her encounter with the spies in Joshua 2, she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Definitely didn't hold back there. She was like... And then it says, When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven and on the earth below. Rahab made a declaration about God, the God of the Hebrews. And she declared that he was God. The story of Rahab is such an amazing story in the Bible because it shows that belief and belief alone is what saves. It didn't matter that Rahab was a Canaanite or a prostitute, which was the lowest class within the Canaanite culture at that time. Rahab declared a belief in God. And the Canaanites knew of the God of the Hebrews. They knew about the stories of Egypt. They knew about the crossing of the Jordan. And they knew about some of the cities before they'd got to Jordan that God had taken on behalf. So they had every chance to, to form this belief. And Rahab did form this belief and declared it out loud. And that is what spared her. But what's, even, what's beautiful about that is we know that one, God wasn't targeting a people group which was a challenge that some people said he was. And two, it didn't matter where you were, what you were doing, or who you were. It mattered that you declared a faith in God. And I feel like that's an awesome thing because it doesn't matter where where we come from. God is God, and when we put our trust and belief in him, there's nothing that can't be done. But what is also amazing about this story is that God wouldn't allow 
someone faithful to him to be killed. And that's why Rahab was spared. In Matthew 1, verse 5 to 6, we read about the genealogy of Christ, the Christ's family, basically. And the thing about genealogies in the Old Testament is it always goes, and then the father of so-and-so, he had him, and then he was the father of so-and-so, and he was the father of so There's a lot of he's in genealogies. Um, you can trace the father back. But in Matthew, it's a really interesting genealogy because um, women are mentioned at times in the genealogy of Christ. And the first woman to be mentioned in the genealogy of Christ was Rahab herself. So Rahab, it says in Matthew 1 verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, um, it's a name that might sound familiar because he married Ruth, whose mother was Rahab. So Rahab was Boaz's mother. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. And we know that David was part of the lineage of Christ. So not only did God spare Rahab because she declared a belief in him, um, not only did he save her whole family and allow her to become part of the nation of Israel, but Rahab was the first woman mentioned in the genealogy of Christ and was actually in the genealogy of Christ. Um, and that just shows so much of God's heart. He is not about nations. He is about people. And, um, and what a privilege. Not only was she mentioned in the genealogy of Christ, which is like enough. <laughs> it, Paul also mentions her in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is a list of the amazing people in the Old Testament and their faith in God. And in Hebrews 11 verse 31, it says, It was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people of her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Cool! She's in two important parts of history. And I think that's really important. And, and God is a God of grace. Um, Rahab didn't earn that. All she did was believe. But all believing is enough. That's all you need to do. Number two, God is the God of hope. So sometimes people take the story of Joshua literally, but also as an analogy. Crossing the Jordan sorry, symbolizes salvation. And then the Battle of Jericho is the first city to fall on your road as a Christian. And that's a really interesting analogy because Jericho was a pathway through to trade routes. It was the most fortified city in the Middle Eastern world, and it was the one where they had to destroy if they wanted to take the land of Canaan. It was a very strategic position, and it was a complete miracle. They had to rely on God and not man to see this journey through to completion. In Philippians 1 verse 6, it says, He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And if you use Jericho as an analogy, God went before you. You cross the Jordan into salvation and God goes before you in those battles. But one thing I really wanted to say, and I struggle with this myself, is the balance between me and God. What's my part in, in my story? And what's God's part in my story? Because I either go all the way, God, this is all you, and I just sit there and twiddle my thumbs a bit, which I, it's really hard to do because I know that God's chosen to partner with me to bring the good news of his kingdom to this world. So I know, I'm do, I know I've got to do something, but what's that balance? But within that, within finding that balance, we've got to re remember and remind ourselves that our salvation was not won by us. And sometimes we do need a reminder that our salvation 
is not won by us. Our salvation is by faith alone and not of man so that we can't boast. There's nothing we did. There's no, nothing we like acted on. There was no good that we were. There was nothing that we deserved to be saved. It was purely by the grace of God. And this is like the story of Jericho. They really didn't do much. They obeyed God um, in a like a weird set of instructions. Yes, they obeyed him, but God did it. And he, he literally brought down the walls of an indestructible city. Um, and that's something to encourage us all in our walk and in our journey. There are, there are battles, to use that analogy, that we all face. And we're trying to work out the best way to do it. And we live in a world of self-improvement, and I am 100% part of that world. I enjoy that. But sometimes we have to turn around and say, God, this is you, um, and I, I trust this, this battle with you, this journey of my walk and this journey into the fullness of my salvation with you. And number three, so he's the God of grace, he's the God of hope, and he's the God of miracles. Number three In whose understanding do we rely on? Okay, so God gave the children of Israel a set of incredibly random instructions. There are people that have counted the number of sevens and have worked out some really cool stuff about the pattern at which God told them to walk around the city. There are some like meteorologists and archaeologists and people who have like worked out that the resin, like the vibrations of their feet at the certain time and then the shouting could have been the thing that broke down the walls. I have read a little bit about this, but I was going down a way too deep rabbit hole. So I came up for a ridiculous set of instructions to explain what God asked the children of Israel to do. And there are times in your life and there are times in your journey and in your walk when things won't necessarily make sense in your, in your logical mind. Because like, I am in a room of very smart people. I know that. I know there are some very smart people here, significantly smarter than myself. And I really want to say that there are times when we want to draw on some of the skills that God's given us, the, the brain he's given us. I'm like a massive fan of C.S. Lewis. He was a, a thinker ahead of his time that kind of wrestled through some of these things with God. But there, there, there are times where we have to just lay down that... Um, attempt to understand or that working things out logically or trying to fix the situation ourselves. And we just have to come to God with everything that we are and just say, okay, here you go. (laughs) Because there are ways I could do this, but like your ways, I don't understand them. And I probably couldn't think of what you're going to think of to get me through this situation, but I know that you can do it. And he is a God of miracles. And miracles... um, happened in the Old Testament, as we see again and again throughout Scripture. They happened in the New Testament, and I believe that they happen today. I believe that God is the same God who smashed down the walls of Jericho as he is today and with us in this room. So my third point really is that God, that we see from this story that God is a God of miracles. So after exploring all these, this is the thing that was really hard about this. I do have another series of pages that I culled because it's actually a great story. But there are so many points that can be drawn from this story 
And I really encourage you to kind of explore that yourself because it's actually incredibly enriching. And if you're really struggling to, um, to be able to study a piece of scripture or sit down or find the time, really genuinely the, the best way to do it is to be put under a significant amount of pressure to get something done for a certain amount of time. Um, and um, it is true. Like some of us are really, really good at self-motivating for the sake of knowledge and others aren't. And I would probably, I'm probably in between. So my encouragement to you is if there's a story that you really want to tackle or you really want to explore, um, put your hand up in your Bible study and just say, I'll do it in two, I'll do this one in two weeks' time. And it'll just, it'll just be the thing that goes, okay, now I've got to explore it. Because once you actually do explore it, um, it's pretty cool. There's pretty cool things that you can discover and that you can find, find out. So that's a really practical way if you struggle to um, deep dive into some of these stories is just to nominate yourself and just <laughs> dive in the deep end because certainly the Bible studies and the groups here, they're just, there is, there's no pressure at all. All you do is just search the scriptures and everyone is very nice and um, they all add to the things that you explore. So I would encourage that. But in conclusion, God is the God of grace, he is the God of hope and he is the God of miracles. So tonight I just wanted to finish with those thoughts. If there are areas in your life where you don't feel good enough, like Rahab, you don't feel worthy enough or you don't see what part you have to play, I guarantee you Rahab didn't think should be in the genealogy of Christ, um, I would encourage you to remember that God is the God of grace and that there is nothing, nowhere that you came from or nothing that you've done that takes away anything from what your future can be. Um, And so if you're struggling in that area, whether it's worthlessness, whether it's a direction to go, um, we'd love to pray together for you. Secondly, if you're struggling to, to to maintain that walk in your salvation, if you're struggling to walk the journey, if you're struggling with that wrestling match between who's how much you're meant to do and how much God's meant to do and whatever, then um, again, would love to pray with you for that because that's a very real thing and one I really wrestle with myself and um, we're a community of people that just gets alongside each other. None of us, we're all walking the journey and we're just walking it together and that's the thing that's beautiful about community. So we'd love to pray with you for that because we're all doing this walk and we're all struggling and we're all finding things hard at times. And, and, some, and then we're all getting victories along the way that we want to share with you and that we want to rejoice in your victories the way that you rejoice in ours. And thirdly, he's the God of miracles. He's the God that smashes down walls. So if you've got an area in your life where you need a miracle, where you need God to come through in a supernatural and miraculous way, don't be afraid to put your hand up and say, I need prayer for this because God is the God of miracles and I genuinely and truly believe he is the God of miracles today as much as he was when he smashed down those walls so many years ago. So if you'd like to stand with me, I'm going to pray for all of us and then I'm going to hand over to, to Chris to lead us in a time of ministry. Father God, we come before you today Thankful and grateful that you gave us your word 
and that you gave us your scripture. And as Paul said, you gave it for encouragement and for hope. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God of hope. And so in this situation, Lord, as we come before you, we just want to bring the things in our lives that we're struggling with. The things in life we need your grace to shine through. The things in life where we need your hope. And those areas in our life where we need your miracle working power. And Lord, we just come before you and we lay them at your feet and we we believe that you are the God of miracles. And we trust you with our lives and we trust you with our salvation and we trust you with our journey because we know that the plans that you have are good. And even though we don't completely understand, understand your ways, we know that you are good. And when situations don't seem to be going the way that we planned and when life seems to be going out of control, we know that you are good. So Lord, we just want to come before you now and we, Father, we ask for your presence, your spirit to come upon us and to minister to us during this time as we bring our burdens before you.